Are you an early stage founder revolutionizing the future of retail? Then you're in the right place. My name is Sapna Shah, and I'm an angel investor investing at the pre-seed and seed stage in retail tech, e-commerce, marketplaces, and consumer. I'm also the founder of Retail X Series, an ecosystem to help early stage founders in the retail and consumer sectors. Retail X Series includes events, a YouTube channel, a Slack community, resources for founders, and this podcast. In this podcast, I interview founders, investors, and experts in the retail space, and we dig deep into the tactics around key topics that early stage founders want to hear about. Welcome to the Retail X Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Retail X Series Podcast. I'm your host, Sapna Shah. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to build and grow a consumer app. Our guest today, Genevieve Belair, is the founder and CEO of Real World. Welcome to the podcast, Genevieve. Thanks so much, Sapna. So happy to be here. So happy to have you. So let's get dive right in and kick it off with learning a little bit more about you and Real World. Tell us a little bit about your background and maybe a bit about Real World and when you launched and some of the kind of those early moments. Sure, of course. So Real World, just a little bit about us first, is essentially building a super app for adulthood. So one platform where you can navigate your finances, healthcare, taxes, employer paperwork, all of the life stuff you don't learn in the classroom through an educationally designed but really impactful and action-oriented experience. And so our vision is to really simplify adulthood and be a one-stop shop around all these different decisions you make when you're starting out in life in your early 20s, but also throughout the journey of adulthood. So whether those are life moments like getting married, having kids, buying a house, any of these sort of large, complex decisions that you likely haven't encountered before and are really important to get right, we provide clarity and streamline those different decisions and platform. And so got started on real world, honestly, just because I felt like I failed at that important entry moment into adulthood. So I was really lucky to have an amazing education. I graduated from college and went straight into law school, actually. So I'm a lawyer by background and ended up doing a joint JD MBA program, which was incredible, but it meant that I didn't actually enter the workforce really until I was 26, as opposed to 18 or 22 years old when most people do. And I found that at my first job, when I was handed my employer paperwork and my 401k and health insurance plans and all this sort of life stuff, it was a very frustrating, isolating experience because despite all that education, I was like educated, but really unprepared to navigate these different important questions and started to look around and realize that pretty much everybody was in the same position. It was almost this rite of passage that you graduate from school, start out and kind of muddle through early adulthood and looked and saw that there wasn't really another product or platform out there that was simplifying this transition and trying to tackle the problem. So I thought, should go build it. I believe when we first met, as we talked about this problem that you were solving, we said, you're either going to try to Google the answer or you're going to ask your mom that those yep. were the <laughs> options at the time. That's exactly right. Those really were the our competitors, was <laughs> your parents and Google, which are, to be honest, not perfect solutions because number one, not everybody has parents they can turn to for a lot of these things. And I was really lucky that I did, but I'm the oldest kid in my family. And so I didn't have an older brother or sister who could give me the real play-by-play. But I think in addition to that, oftentimes when you talk to your parents, you're getting sometimes outdated information and or not biased by their own experience information, as opposed to the full suite of services out there that could be helpful or all of that sort of thing. And then from the Google perspective, it's totally overwhelming. I mean, when you put in credit card into Google and search that term, you get like two or 3 billion results and the first eight of them are ads. And so it's a very hard just space to navigate, even though there is so much information out there, it's not packaged in a way that helps people out. Great. Great. Okay. So 
Let's start at the beginning. And I think the first question is, and I think a lot of founders struggle with this, is why did you want to build an app versus a mobile website or a desktop website? So I have a lot to share on this, actually, because we started initially with web. And we started with web because it's easier to build on web for a lot of reasons. One, as your users or your audience might know, you can iterate much more quickly. And also, you don't have to necessarily build for iOS or for Android or for a specific device and update it constantly and all of that. So one, we wanted to say, let's just learn as much as we can, as quickly as we can via web. And the market that we were going after at the time was more focused on businesses and and universities that we were engaging with around providing this sort of a product to recent graduates and to their students. So we figured, okay, web is the web's the way to go. The challenge with web though, is that it's really hard to build a truly meaningful relationship with a user because you're not in their pocket. If anything, they're seeing web, but in a mobile version of web and you can't send them push notifications. You can't do a lot of features that are important for network effects, like being able to sync contacts or upload information really easily. And so you limit yourself in, from an experience perspective and a relationship building perspective. And when we pivoted in 2020 to be a consumer focused product, we thought, okay, you know what? We have to go to mobile. And it was data-driven in the sense that we looked at our usage on web and 95% of people were looking at the web product on their phones. It's like, all right, we need to build something here. But two, because we had a vision for that much more robust relationship. So that's why we decided to go app versus website. But I think it was definitely a, a winding decision to get there. Yeah, that makes sense. And especially given the age of the age cohort that you're going after, exactly. you're definitely mobile first and expect yes. an app. <laughs> exactly. So when you did launch that app and, and pivot from this more B2B model to the model, how did you decide when to launch, how to launch? One of the questions we hear a lot is, should I start with a soft launch, a beta, and then do something big and splashy with PR or time of year? What were the considerations you took and ultimately decided to do? Sure. So the most important thing for us was really to launch, just as you said, at a certain time of year. And that was graduation season because we wanted to get in front of people as they were graduating, particularly as they might be trying to search for a lot of these different answers to a lot of these different questions, whether that's moving to a new city or figuring out first day paperwork at your job or getting your first credit card, like all of these things, a lot of the first specifically were things that people were dealing with over the summer after they graduate, specifically from college, but from high school as well. And so for us, what was most important was the timing. And so we worked really hard to be able to push something out. And this was in 2021, late in the in April, May of 2021, just in time for graduation season. And so we thought, if we're going to do this, let's make it count. So we went the route of splashier, activating all of our networks, got press around it, all of that kind of thing. But I think we were able to do that and that was successful because we had already built and had a branded market around the web product. When we initially launched the web product, there was no fanfare. It was very much iterative concept. Let's just get it in front of as many people as we can and really learn from them as opposed to put our foot forward as real world, establish our brand in this way and get eyeballs on something that's maybe not fully baked yet. So I think it's really important from a consumer app perspective to know that you really only get a couple of chances with consumers to get it right. And so if you're very early days of a product, whether web or app, my advice is to launch quietly, soft launch, as they say, learn as much as you can from people, maybe keep it in a beta for as long as you can to really perfect the product. And then when you feel confident and ready and 
not only your product is ready to go, but your go-to-market strategy is really ready to go equipped. You have customer support ready to answer questions, et cetera. Go down that pathway of something a bit splashier because you want to make sure you're taking advantage of all of those moving pieces at once. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned go-to-market strategy. So what were the things that you think were that contributed to the success of the launch of the app? Yeah. So I think part of it is trying to figure out who are you trying to get in front of, right? Not just in terms of market segmentation, but from a startup's perspective, sometimes you're trying to get in front of investors. Sometimes you're trying to get in front of potential partners to work with. Sometimes it's customers, sometimes it's consumers. It could be any number of things. So I think for us, where we decided to focus most of our time was the consumer, the customer that we wanted to get on the product itself, but also because we were going to kick off more of a fundraising effort, we wanted to get in front of investors. And so had two sort of pathways we went down in terms of marketing from the consumer side. It was a lot of social media focused ads. So think Instagram, TikTok, all of that sort of thing, showcasing the product in a beautifully designed video, being able to really tell the story a bit more and get that out in market and then very easily assist people in downloading the product and checking it out. And then being able to activate our own networks of other founders, friends of the company, et cetera, to share with their own networks and create more of that network effect. Posting on product hunt, like really trying to take a a full court press approach towards getting that to market. And then secondly, once we had some press that we got in the Wall Street Journal that May with our new product, we're able to put that in front of people as an advertisement on Instagram, TikTok, et cetera. It was an additional bump from the entire press experience. And then on the investor side, it was a lot more reaching out to people, activating them, telling them that this product was live, encouraging them to check it out, keeping them posted on traction, showing them things like the Wall Street Journal article as, as validity or validation in terms of what we were building. Um, so slightly different strategy, but both with the idea of let's make a splash as much as possible and then go learn from the people who sign up and reviews it. So that's interesting. So it sounds like, for me to paraphrase what you just said, you cast a wide net on marketing activities and really did try to do a lot for go for the launch and for go to market. And as launches a certain period of time, and as you went to the let's call it the day to day business, where did you start? Did you continue to cast a wide net, or did you double down on channels? Like, did you learn a lot from the launch in terms of what worked and what didn't for you? Yeah, exactly. So I think that's the, that's exactly it. And we have a, our product is very widely applicable. So it's a product that frankly, like almost anyone can use. It's not super specific niche, which I think would have changed our strategy entirely in terms of really going deep and activating influencers within that niche and even doing like a live person event or things along those lines. And so for us, it was in many ways, casting a wide net to then learn just as you're going to learn about the product, learn about the market landscape and start segmenting people into uh, better understand like what does retention look like after three months? What do things look like after a certain amount of time with these different groups and what can we learn from them? And that's interesting because you just mentioned retention. I think this is one of the things that a lot of founders really struggle with consumer tech in general, which is that particularly investors are looking for certain metrics. You're trying to track metrics, but it's early. So you don't have years of metrics to show kind of what sort of metrics were the most important to you? Was it kind of the retention and churn? Was it engagement? What were the things that you found most important? And then did your investors agree with you that those were the most important metrics? Yeah, I think we've been lucky to be pretty aligned with our investors from the start in terms of being one, a product led company. So spending a lot of our time iterating on the product and understanding that 
the metrics that matter likely will change as we learn more about the product and how it's being used by our users and what they want. But all that is to say, I think the big things we focused on in the earlier days were the acquisition funnel. So is the message of this product and sort of the, the vision of this product resonating with people? Are we striking a chord? Because that gets to product market fit down the line, even if your product is not quite there yet. If someone is excited enough to see an ad, download the product, create an account and come in, there's something there. So tracking growth and tracking our month over month growth, but also the cost of acquisition to better understand unit economics down the line was a big place we spent time. And the other I'd say is engagement, more so than retention, frankly, because retention ultimately is a lagging metric of engagement. And it's hard to it's hard to make a lot of changes on a retention metric versus an engagement one because you're looking in the past. So ideally, if you start doing things right from an engagement perspective, retention will improve over time. I think something that was a challenge for us to crack in the early days and probably for a lot of consumer companies is what's the right cadence to engage with your users? Is it a daily active use product? Is it a weekly active use? Is it a monthly active use? Is it not a consistent product, but something like Uber where it's there when you need it, it's a tool, but you're not in the app all the time doing something. And I think for us, where we ultimately landed was we want to be a monthly or weekly active use product. We don't think we should be a daily active use product. And that ultimately, as you can imagine, shifted our product roadmap to make sure that we were building features and building the support and messaging and everything else around notifications, et cetera, around that type of a cadence. But I think learning which metric is right can take some time. And so in the early days, when you just have a product in market, it's hard. You should be tracking so many things, but really starting to figure out like, what are the things to optimize? And I probably should have said this in the beginning, but as I'm an investor in your company, I know <laughs> that one time, one, one point we spoke about some of the customer cohorting too, and the fact that you with some of the different marketing channels, you found out some surprising things on your customers versus your hypothesis of who those customers would be. Can you talk to me more about like how you came to those realizations and then what do you do with that once you figure that out? Completely. So I think the simplest thing, which should go without saying, but for a lot of early startups is a little bit more of an afterthought when you don't have that much funding is how important it is to install some kind of software, whether it's mixed panel, whether it's something much more advanced, whether it's just Google Analytics, that's truly giving you some insights as to who the people are who are on your product, how they're getting there, what they're doing, etc. Because when you spin up a product, that's not always very clear. And it's like trying to drive without being able to look in the rear view mirror of knowing anywhere that you've been and what's resonating. And so I think for us in the early days, we thought when we put the product in market pre mixed panel, etc., that this is a product that will probably most likely be resonating with that post-college age cohort. So let's say like 22 to 25. And there'll of course be people outside of those, out of outside those bounds. But what was interesting, as you said, was that number one, when we started experimenting with different channels, particularly TikTok, which at the time was very much still growing into a more sophisticated advertising platform, was that we started seeing so many younger people like teenagers coming to real world. And that became a massive acquisition channel for us. And what was interesting about that is that their needs are slightly different. And so we were trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we solve? Is that the cohort we should really be focusing on? Let's watch and see what they do. How do we make sure we're supporting them? And then similarly, we started to see a larger cohort emerge in the kind of post 27, 28 year old cohort. And so we started to realize, number one, this is a product that's widely applicable, which is great. But as we think about focusing our efforts, which of these cohorts, the teenage group, the like post-college group, or the sort of late bloomers, so to speak, like 27 to 35 year olds who are still figuring a lot of this stuff out, 
which of those cohorts is going to be the best for us to focus on. And it ended up, to be honest, and even now it's a, there's certain things we do really well for each, but I think that like later cohort is actually where we've found a lot of resonance and stickiness because they not only realize how valuable a tool like this is because they didn't have it when they were 22 and probably made some of the mistakes that they would not have made had they had it. But they're also at a point in their lives where it's important to get your life together and maybe have had a couple of jobs, making some money now, looking to invest, looking to look to larger life milestones, like getting married, having kids, buying a house, et cetera. And so there's more of an incentive around this sort of thing. But it took months of really looking at the data and understanding who's coming, what are they doing, where are they coming from, and how long are they sticking around to understand where are the people we want to spend the most time optimizing. Yeah, that's actually really fascinating. And I think one of the things that investors ask, not just consumer tech companies, but consumer products companies, is about customer cohorting. And where do you see the ones you can monetize, where are the ones who are just along for the free ride, who's the stickiest, all of those things, where do you see the biggest engagement, which kind of leads me to ask you a little bit more about fundraising. I think this is a very difficult space, particularly now, as we record this in October of 2022, to raise for these kinds of companies. I think there has been a lot of macroeconomic stuff that's happened, but also I think the metrics in the bar keeps changing. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your fundraising journey in relationship to the different stages of your company and when you found investors most receptive, would you do anything differently looking back on it now? Sure. So just for some context, we raised a little bit less than 8 million to date since the beginning of the company. And that was really in, I'd say, two major kind of groups. The first was, or maybe three, First was when we went through Techstars back in 2019, raised a pre-seed round, and then raised our first institutional round of funding in 2021, and our second institutional round of funding in 2022. And we were fortunate to be able to close it um, really right before the macroeconomic conditions and everything fell apart over the summer of 2022. And so I think that the big things that I have definitely noticed exactly what you said, which is that the bar has changed massively. I think when we were raising our seed, it was right before valuations and things went crazy and everybody was throwing more money at things. And it was that didn't get caught up in a lot of that hype, fortunately. And then similarly, when we raised our seed two, we were right before the market started crashing around the series A mark, which was people raising series A's without really having some of those like hard line metrics around monetization and product market fit, et cetera, that I think set up a lot of people for failure for their future rounds, just because the gap between where you were and where you need to get where you need to get with the same amount of money was a lot bigger. So I think we fortunately have been lucky in terms of the journey of fundraising in terms of our timing, sort of the folks that we've worked with, et cetera. But I think one thing that we've focused a lot more on now is building a sustainable business and making sure that we're thinking through not only monetization, how to start generating real revenue from our users and from our business, but also to think about the growth aspect and how expensive growth can be. And to your point around consumer companies, I think one of the reasons why it's it can be very hard to raise as a consumer business is that investors know how much cash goes into marketing. And when you have to spend a third of your raise, if not more on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all of these different channels to get in front of people, it can seem like an inefficient use of capital, inefficient use of business, business proceeds. So all that is to say is I think the, the bar certainly jumped, I think, 
focus on sustainable business building, CACT LTV, et cetera, and monetization has definitely become more of the forefront for consumer businesses as well as any kind of business. And I think there's been a little bit less emphasis on growth, which I think is probably a healthy thing across the board, frankly, because as an as a, a startup founder, you want to be growing quickly. You want to be learning as much as possible from the users who are coming into your, your product. But at some point, you want to make sure that you're not spending money just to get the metrics. You want to be spending money to get the sustainable, good users. So it's nice to have a little bit of that resetting in the market too. Yeah. And when you say that there was this focus on growth versus now like more of a healthy growth, I guess I would say, yeah. um, you know, it, when you think about healthy growth or what have your investors told you in what they think is healthy growth and just in terms of from a metrics perspective, because it used to be very simple for consumer apps. It was like X percent month over month user growth. Like that was the only metric that mattered a few years ago. But what is, what are those metrics today, at least as far as? Yeah. So I've been asking this question actually of different investors. And I think there's, you're still getting different answers from people as opposed to monetization, which I feel like there's more clear lines of a million in ARR for series A plus. But when it comes to growth, I think people look at it either as a function of that LTV to CAC ratio. So like how much can you grow? without spending a ton of money or like, what is your CAC overall? But the month over month growth, I think has been a little bit less important. I think double digit certainly growth month over month, but is it 30, 40%? I think people are ne not necessarily expecting that for high growth companies right now, unless they're just total rocket ship and have an amazing acquisition channel. So I think it's quarterly growth, overall year over year growth. And then monthly, I'd say certainly double digits, but not what it was, maybe like a half to a third of what it was before. Yeah, that's some helpful context. And I think I'm sure by the time this episode comes out, that will all be completely yeah, it'll be information. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be totally wrong. But it's hard it, to keep up. Exactly, exactly. And it's interesting that you're still talking to people about what their expectations are, because I think you're right. Investors have not aligned on what they're looking for and what, how fast should growth be? How much of your race should go to marketing channels? All of those questions, I think are still very open questions, uh, yeah. but thanks for sharing last, your perspective. Yeah, of course. The last thing to throw in there too, which some of your, some of your audience may have experienced too, is there's also fluctuations in terms of just the market in terms of how much growth costs in terms of inefficiencies around Facebook, different sorts of ad spend, et cetera. And we saw this over the summer. Q2 was brutal for consumer companies. Q3 was to some extent as well, calmed down a little bit. But I think it really can mess up a lot of your plans when you're relying on a channel to grow consistently and you have just a half to twice as much or one and a half to twice as much money per user that you did three months prior. So it's sort of the tough thing, again, about consumers, you're relying on this sort of third party to drive a lot of the business in a way that can be challenging. Yeah, for sure. Before we wrap up, I think the last thing I'd love to ask is just sort of thinking about founders who are maybe launching an app soon and a consumer app. What's the one piece of advice that you'd give them as they're looking ahead to this journey that you've been on for the last couple of years? I think the biggest piece of advice... Besides, I'd just say that table stakes of build a great team and surround yourself with good people is specifically for consumer apps is just constantly be listening to your user and talking to them and be flexible in your mindset in terms of what you think this product is going to look like. Real world, for example, we've been through over 20 different iterations of what our product looks like. And we're a little bit of a unique situation because it truly is a new type of product. So there's not another competitor or other product in the market like it. 
But as a result, we've had to stay really close to our users, watch them very carefully, understand what they're looking for and build with them as opposed to launch something into market hope it works, and then we try and make it work. Because I think that's the pitfall that people can find themselves in. I myself found it myself there too. Just that flexibility and sort of constant listening iteration, I think is a really healthy and smart place to be in the early days. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I should have actually asked that question, but I think that is <laughs> so important and such good advice, whether it's honestly a consumer app, a consumer product, or even a B2B product, talking to your yeah. customers is incredibly helpful as you build. And so you don't build the wrong thing. Yes, exactly. It's also, I think being able to fall in love with the problem that you're solving as opposed to the solution you're building is good because if you are focused on the problem, then you're focused on the user and then you're learning from them as opposed to building a solution that you think is great, but maybe doesn't resonate quite as much with the market needs to change. I love that. I love that way of putting it, being able to fall in love with the problem you're solving, not just your solution. (laughs) That's great. I love it. Genevieve, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your advice and all your tips and kind of your experience on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for letting me share my story and telling the opportunity of everything we've been building at Real World. Great. Thanks again. And thank you all for listening to the Retail X podcast. We'll have another new episode out shortly. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Retail X series, check out www.retailxseries.com for more information, including recordings of past events. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Retail X series. You could also learn more about me, find fundraising resources, or submit a pitch deck at www.redgiraffeadvisors.com. Thanks and catch you next time.